We're going to read from the scriptures this morning. We're reading Psalm 42 and 43. We're going to get into those as we continue our summer in the Psalms. Uh, Listen to uh, Gary and Sally as they read. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. What people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, so I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep. In the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are my God, you are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, as we continue our, our series, Psalms, the language of faith, uh, we're getting into the, the second book. Psalm 42 and 43 are really kind of one psalm. Uh, they're tied together with a common refrain, Why are you downcast, O my soul? They kick off book two of the psalms. Now, remember, the psalms are divided into three or I'm sorry, five books, not three, but five. And if you're reading your Bible attentively, walking through, you will remember that there's another group of five books. It's called the Torah, often called the law, but it's Torah, and literally it means instruction or teaching. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and they are an instruction on God's way. And so the, the Psalms present themselves as a Torah, an instruction on 
prayer. And so remember, Psalm 1 begins with a blessing. Blessed is the one who delights in God's instruction. And so we are learning from the Psalms this instruction on a life that is full of blessing, that is full of praise. Now, we need help with this. We need help living a life of praise. Left to ourselves, we'll head off in all kinds of weird directions that won't lead to a deep soul satisfaction. So we need instruction. How many of you have put together something from Ikea and tried to do it without the instructions? How did it go for you? Right? It's not great. How much more complicated is life than Swedish furniture? We need help. We need instruction on how to live this life. And so uh, Psalm 42 and 43 are this instruction. It's written by uh, an ancient Near Eastern worship band called the Sons of Korah. And these guys uh, had a job description that was basically like this. Help people encounter God. Okay, That was what they were to do. And so they are uh, presenting this psalm, the superscription, the little tiny text at the top of Psalm 42 says that this, it is for the director of music and it's a maskil, which is this Hebrew word that, that literally gets at the idea that it's in a psalm of insight. It is for instruction. It's a teaching psalm. And so the sons of Korah are about to instruct us. Let's see what they're instructing us about. Okay. They say, right out of the gate, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Now there are two things that jump out immediately at this psalm. First of all, the psalmist feels like God is a necessity. They view God as a total necessity. And at the same time, they they see God as a scarcity. The psalmist... Uh, feels that God is scarce in their life. Now, those of you who think like economists, this will work for you. Others of you will have artsy illustrations later. But the economists in the room, you know what a necessity is, right? Water, food, shelter, iPhones, Amazon Prime, those kinds of things. These are necessities in life, the things you have to have. And the problem is when a necessity is scarce, it drives up the price, which is great if you own it. It's not great if you need it. And so people are willing to pay anything. And in this psalm, God is viewed as a necessity, but felt as a scarcity. The author is going to show us then what to do when it feels like that, when it feels like God is scarce. So first of all, he says, my soul thirsts for God. I thirst for the living God. God is described as the living God, so that's a contrast to the false gods, right, that are worshipped by many. But it's also getting at the nature of God as the source of life. Okay, that God is the source of life, the wellspring of life. That's actually the, at the core of who God is. God, in his essence, is the giver of life. The Father has eternally been giving life to the Son. The Son eternally shares in the life of the Father. And so this is what God does. It's natural for him to give life. And so out of the overflow of his love and grace, he creates life and he invites us in to fellowship with him. And fellowship is life with God. Now, the problem here 
is that things that are necessities don't always feel like necessities, do they? Now, we all need water, right? We all need water. But I will oftentimes get to the end of my day and I will realize that I woke up in the morning and had coffee and then I got to the office and I had some more coffee and somewhere after my afternoon meetings I had coffee and when I get home and after dinner I might be tempted to have some coffee and I'll look at Lauren and be like, I haven't had any water today. Right? Like an idiot. I'm just a total moron. I'm like, my kidneys are hurting and I think I'm dying. You know, and Lauren's like, have you drinking water today? So she bought me something to like fill up with water all the time because she's like, you're a moron. You need to drink water. The thing is, it's also a good cup for coffee. So, um, <laughs> keeps things hot or cold. So, uh, water was more of a necessity in my life on a day-to-day basis than I maybe was aware of or cared about. You see, our need doesn't necessarily have anything to do with our awareness or our appetite. I might need to save money, but may have an appetite for spending it. I may have a need for a heart surgery, but have no awareness of how my diet is killing me. You see, the, the psalmist says, we have a great need, but the psalmist is aware of it and he has an appetite for his need, right? Now, today you may be here and you, you may be vaguely aware of a need for God. Maybe you're here today and you don't have much of an appetite for your need for God. Uh, St. Augustine, one of his famous quotes at the beginning of his spiritual autobiography, he called it the Confessions, or the Confessions of St. Augustine. He says this, and I think this is such a great line. He says that our hearts are restless until they rest in you, right? As he prays to God, our hearts are restless. And so maybe you're here today with a restless heart, and you're getting in touch with a need, and it's maybe stirring an appetite for your need. So let me exhort you here today, right out of the gate, and tell you don't leave here today, please, without doing an assessment on your needs. Deal with your needs today. Maybe for you it's a wake up call spiritually that you have a need for the God who made you and wants to relate to you. Maybe it's a mere course correction for you today. You've been just busy. Well, maybe it's a course correction. Where do you need God today? So first of all, God's a necessity. Second of all, he's a scarcity in the psalmist's life. So that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time today, looking at the scarcity of God in the psalmist's life and in our lives at times. He says this, he says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. Where can I go to meet with God? Or where can I find God's face, he says. Now, Here's the thing. We, we kind of think about deer and streams of water. And maybe for you, this is like a Thomas Kincaid, beautiful, like everything's great kind of picture. Well, it, it, it's not, okay? The, the way the poetry works is it's an image of a dying deer, okay? Have you ever found a panting deer before? No, because they're not idiots like me, right? They, they know when they need water and they drink it, okay? So... Uh, a panting deer, and by the way, like we used to have deer show up in our yard all the time. It was awesome when our dog used to chase the deer. That was fun. But we never saw a panting deer. Part of that's because there's an abundance of water in the Northwest, but it's because deer drink, right? They know their need, and they find water, and they drink it. Um, and what the psalmist is getting at is he's saying, look, 
I am going dry here. Okay, so a panting deer is a deer that went to its usual riverbeds and found the riverbeds dry. Every time it goes to a source of water, it finds itself disappointed. So a panting deer is literally a deer that's dying of thirst. And so uh, the psalmist is going around saying, look, I am experiencing a spiritual condition known as drought, okay? This is a drought. And so he's instructing us on how to deal with this condition of spiritual drought because it's something that's going to happen to you. He's describing spiritual dryness. He's describing an absence of God in his life. He says, I don't feel like God's there. I sense his scarcity. There are times when you experience God in abundance and your heart's warmed and, and filled with his presence. And there are times when you're just like, where are you? Like when you're trying to put your kids to bed at night. You're like, where are you, God? Right? Like, fix them. Right? Uh, or worse, right? There are times when we just go, where are you, Lord? And so this psalm is instructing us on how we deal with it when it happens. He's saying, I'm like that deer, and God is like a dry riverbed to me. I'm looking for God in the usual places, but he's not there. It's not that I don't believe he exists, but I don't experience his presence. And so he says, when shall I come to appear before God? It's literally, when shall I see the face of God? And he's getting at the idea that he's lost this relational connection to his God. Right? There's no more taste and feel and sight and sound of God on his soul. And so the things that used to cause him satisfaction are no longer working. Now, I, I, this is super important to us as we get into this psalm. There are times in the psalms where the, the author is expressing God's absence and it's bothering him. And it's because of sin in their life. Okay, It's because of something they've done or an inward attitude that they've embraced that is just contrary to God and his nature and they've turned from him in some significant way. And in this psalm, the psalmist is lamenting God's absence and there's no mention of sin. There's no mention of confession of anything that he's done wrong. Now, sin will always erode our connection with the Lord. Sin will always damage intimacy on our end. It always affects our connection, okay? Uh, and it doesn't alter his love for us, but it alters our experience of his love. Thanks, God, thanks be to God in Christ Jesus, we have a faithful high priest. And when we are aware of sin in our lives, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and forgive us all our sin. That's 1 John 1, 8 and 9. That's an absolutely hopeful, hopeful promise. But this isn't what's going on in this psalm. The psalmist is just experiencing a drought, just like a drought happens on the land. It just happens. The land didn't necessarily do something wrong, but it dries up. And culturally, as Americans, we have a huge problem with this, don't we? We love to blame people when there's problems. Whose fault is it, right? Let's sue them or arrest them. Let's do something, right? And so when something goes wrong in our spiritual life, we begin to think maybe it's me, right? I've, I've neglected something on my spiritual to-do list. Now, it's great to do self-examination, but one reason I think we often fail to tell other Christians I'm feeling spiritually dry, I'm going through a drought spiritually, is because we know what they're going to say. Right? They're going to read us the Christian to-do list. Well, have you prayed in faith? Have you confessed all your sin? Have you claimed the promises? Have you rebuked the devil? Have you claimed the blood? Have you thanked God for your many blessings? 
right? And we're thinking, yes, I've done everything I think I know how to do, but I just don't sense God's nearness in my life, right? And so because this isn't a result of sin, let me tell you something. Spiritual drought will happen to you inevitably, okay? It will happen. Now, why do you need to know this? Well, first of all, if you are a new Christian, if you are recent in your embrace of Christ, let me tell you, if nobody ever explains this to you, it will mess you up. Because there'll be a place where you realize, I I don't feel God's warmth and love like I used to, and it'll begin to freak you out. You'll start to doubt, and you'll start to think, well, maybe this was all nice for a while, but I had it all wrong, and God isn't real, or He isn't good, or... All right, and, and we begin to deal with that condition, maybe by distancing ourselves from God. Some of you, uh, you, you, you can go off the rails spiritually for years, right? This is something we can do. We can, a season of dryness can happen in our lives, in our walk with God, and we experience it deeply, and we don't know where to go with it, and so we stay away from God for years. Right? There must be something wrong with God or church or me, and it's not working. And as American pragmatists, we tend to say, well, if it's not working, then it must not be valuable. Right? And we define what working means, by the way. So, this doubt usually doesn't begin with intellectual problems. It's usually an experience where we begin to say, I don't feel God, and so therefore, maybe he's not there. And our feelings begin to determine our beliefs. This is a downward spiral And we're going to see how the psalmist helps us to not go there. So, we need to know how to deal with the condition. The condition is spiritual drought. It happens to everyone, first of all. And this is important to know so we don't go off the rails when it happens to us. And we recognize it, that it's something the scriptures address. So, before we know how to deal with the condition, I think we need to be aware of some of the reasons it happens. And so the psalmist helps us. He gets into it. He explains his experience in a way that helps us see some contributing factors. Now, hear this. These contributing factors are not necessarily the causes, but they are often associated. All right, listen to what he says. Here are some contributing factors. Contributing factor number one to spiritual drought. He says in verse four, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude-keeping festival. Uh, Verse 6, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Now, these are some images that are taken from ancient Near Eastern life. As a a Jewish person, uh, they were a worship leader. They were a ministry leader. And they would spend their time at the temple. They would spend their time leading people in an encounter with God, singing celebration of God and his mighty deeds, right? And now instead of being at the temple, he's describing his location as being way up in the north, not in the south in Judah where the temple is, but way up in the north, Mount Hermon and Mount Mazar, up at the headwaters of the Jordan River, okay? And it is, uh, it is a far, he's far from church, okay? That's what he's saying. I used to go to church, right? I used to be, uh, a ministry leader. I used to be with God's people as I would celebrate God. And now I'm isolated from the community that celebrates God. I'm not in church anymore, right? in a way. Uh, and so he longs for times of celebration. And, and so he's experiencing a disruption in community. 
That's the first thing that he's experiencing. His, his community has been disrupted. He's no longer a part of the people who are celebrating. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, uh, says something really brilliant here about his three, these three close friends, himself, Lewis, Ronald, and Charles. And these guys were close mutual friends, and he said that when Charles died, he anticipated that he would have more of Ronald. But to his surprise, he didn't have more of Ronald. He had less of Ronald, right? Now that Charles was dead, he didn't have more of his friend. He had less of Ronald because Charles brought out something unique in Ronald that he couldn't do himself. Right? Do, you, do you see the genius of what Lewis is saying? He's saying that no one individual can call the whole person out. It always takes a group of people to know people. I, I experienced this, and if, if you are a husband or a dad, you, you would likely experience this. I thought my wife was pretty great when I married her. And then she had Penny, and then Milo, and then Eloise. And as the kids came, like her awesomeness expanded, right? I, I began to know her as a mom of not one but two but three kids, right? And, and so she had more dimension to her than I knew as just herself, herself right? And so this is, this is what we're getting at. We're called to be a part of a family, right? Where all the dimensions of our image of godness come out in the context of relationship and of a church family. So he is crying out for community, He doesn't underestimate the importance of community, and neither should we. We need one another to sustain our sense of God. And by the way, it usually only takes one person to take the initiative on including somebody. I mean, in any given church, there are people on the fringes, right? Now, there are times where we self-select to be isolated, but, you know, the reality is to experience God in community takes usually just one person to take the initiative and be inclusive. And it happened that way in my life. I remember being a 13-year-old and Peter Pizzuto, the mature 17-year-old, invited me to come along and be a part of what was happening in, in that church community. And that changed my life. So be inclusive of someone today. Right? Because disruption of community will always lead to drought. Secondly, uh, the psalmist is disillusioned and discouraged by the events in his life. Look at, uh, look at this, verse 3. My tears have become my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? Right? I mean, can you imagine just being totally depressed and you're, the people around you are like, right? Where's God in that? Yeah, he's not there, is he? Right? I mean, that's the antagonistic taunting that's happening in the psalmist's life. He's saying, I'm weeping, I'm depressed, and I've got people saying, where's God in that? Right? Where is God? Now, oftentimes in the psalms, enemies are after the psalmist's life. Here, the enemies are just taunting him. Where's your God? Where's your God? And he's taking it to heart. Right? By verse 9, he's saying, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Okay? He feels it now. He feels that God has abandoned him in a sense. And so he's listening to the voice of the enemy and he's believing it. And there is. There is a real spiritual enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what Jesus says in John 10. And so... The thing is, you don't ask that question, where's God, when everything's going the way you want it to. Right? When things are going the way that you've designed for yourself, you're like, yeah, 
Everything's great. But when they're not, it starts to feel like, hmm, maybe that good, just, and caring God doesn't care about me. Right? If God is really who he says he is, then why is this happening? These are the questions we begin to ask. Right? Why is the cancer back? Why are my kids walking away from God? Why is this happening? See, these aren't just questions from the outside. They're questions from the inside. He's saying, why have you forgotten me? And it's really natural. It's natural to react this way when things happen. To go, God, you feel far away from me. What's going on? Maybe you've just committed your life to Christ. And then all of a sudden, you hit terrible times. Right? And you think to yourself, my life's falling apart. Right? I came to Christ and then everything just got harder. The funny thing is we rarely stop and ask ourselves, what if everything had fallen apart before I had come to Christ? If I didn't have Christ? Right? Instead we go, well, God, why would you allow that? Instead of thinking, wow, what would happen if I didn't have this rock? So uh, one of the realities, when life is disappointing, when life is disillusioning for us, let me tell you, I think in the economy of God, He's, he's showing us, I, I'm counting you worthy to grow through this. Uh, this old Puritan preacher said this. His name was Richard Sibbs. He said, as men cherish young plants at first and fence them about with hedges and other things to keep them from hurt, but when they are grown, they remove them and leave them to the wind and weather. So God besets his children first with props of inward comforts, but afterwards he exposes them to storms and winds because they are better able to bear it. Therefore, let no man think himself the better because he is free from troubles. It is because God sees him not yet fit to bear greater. So disillusionment at life's events is not necessarily a sign that God has left you, but a sign that God is growing you. So there's disruption of community and there's disillusionment at the events of life. There's also deprivation. Okay, this is, listen to what he says. My tears have been my food day and night. Right? What does that mean? He stopped eating. Like, he's not having steak anymore. He's eating salt water. Right? He has no appetite. He says that he's not sleeping. I've been crying night and day. Right? So he's not sleeping well. He's not eating well. And so his overall condition is also affected by something physical in his life. Right? There may be other factors, but we have to understand this, that we are essentially whole people. There may be seasons in your life where you go, I don't feel God, I don't feel God, and then you eat a ham sandwich and you're like, oh, Lord, he is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? Because you're anemic and you needed a ham sandwich or something. Right? And like That happens and that's okay. But the problem is, as Americans, we become very dualistic, which means we, we pit the spiritual and the physical against each other. We pull them apart. The Bible doesn't do that. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, wrote this book years ago called Spiritual Depression, and he makes a very important point that things in our bodies and hearts are linked, that there are people who will say your problem is physical, so therefore you should take a pill. There are others who will say your problem's moral, you should toughen up and try harder. There are those who will say your problem's psychological, you just need support and for people to listen. The Bible, on the other hand, is far less reductionistic than your modern culture. It's far more complex. It's far more integrated and whole. And the Bible will say that you need sleep and you need food and you need your body to be taken care of. You also need friends who will listen to you and care about you. And you also need truth that you apply. 
Right? And so the Bible is integrative. And it says, no, we're whole. All these things are involved. And there's an astounding balance of listening to the heart and speaking to the heart that we see in the Psalms. So these are the three contributing factors. Disruption of community, disillusionment of life, and deprivation. So what do we do when it happens? What do we do when there's a drought? What are the cures? Uh, The author does four things here with this condition of drought that we can follow in. He pours out his soul, first of all. He pours out his heart. Uh, That's what he says here, right? Uh, my, My tears are my food. He says, right, these things I will remember as I pour out my soul. Um, This is actually interesting. The whole of Psalm 42 and 43 is pretty ironic because the entire time he's saying, God, I don't feel like you're there. I feel like I'm in a spiritual drought. I don't feel you. I don't sense him in worship or at prayer or in Bible study. I don't really feel him when I go to church, right? Yet he says, this whole psalm, 42 and 43, is declaring how much he doesn't sense God's nearness while he's actually doing a long exercise of prayer and meditation. The psalm is an exercise in prayer and meditation on God's word. And so what, what does that mean for us today? It means this, that if you're getting nothing out of worship, if it's totally dry to you, don't miss it. If worship's not moving you, be there early, on time even, at Cedar Mill Bible Church. It's revolutionary, I know. We start at 9 and 11. Like, on the minute. Anyway, so, so if it's dry for you, get there. Can, be consistent. If you're not sensing God in prayer, keep at it. If you're not getting anything out of reading your Bible, make it a priority. John Newton, uh, the, the famous hymn writer, said that if you're getting nothing from going to the throne of grace, I can assure you, you will get nothing from staying away from it. <laughs> it makes sense, doesn't it? If nothing else, talk to God about how much you miss him. If nothing else, talk to the absent God about his absence. Maybe he wants that in your life. So it'll stir up thirst and desire for what you truly need. Pour out your heart as a discipline. One of the things that helps me is to write. Writing helps me. Second thing he does. First he pours out his soul. Second thing he does is he analyzes his hopes. Uh, There's this repeated phrase that runs through 42 and 43. He says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Do you think that's a rhetorical question? I think he's looking for information. I think he's saying, no, really, why am I so downcast? Right? I don't think it's just like a nice line. I think he's looking for information. He's doing self-examination. He's doing a self-interview. You see, spiritual dryness is a great opportunity to examine the hopes of our hearts. Because a, a spiritual drought can reveal things in our lives. Places, maybe, maybe it's not, uh, it hasn't beset us because of sin, but it maybe has come on us because we have inordinate loves and misplaced hope, right? Maybe that hope and that relationship is driving me off course from God and I'm, I'm realizing I'm not getting anything out of God because I put all of my hope really in something that wasn't ever meant to bear my hope. And so Psalm 42 and 43 is an exercise in self-examination. 
teaching us to relocate and shift our hope off of the job, off of the girl, off of the house or the, uh, the retirement or whatever it is and say, my hope is in the living God. He's my God. And I, we join the psalmist in saying that. He's my God and I will hope again in him. See, it's far better to wake up realizing you're thirsty than go on dehydrated. So we have to practice examination. Thirdly, he remembers the character of God. He remembers God's loving mercy. Verse 8, he says, By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And so he's mulling over the character of God. It's one thing to pour out our heart. It's another thing to examine our hearts. But if we don't inform our hearts with the truth of who God is and his scripture, then we are always going to be adrift. There's no hope of filling up. You see, he says in Psalm 43, he he says, Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain. He's counting on the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit in his life. He's counting on his memory of God's character to guide him home. And so we need to do the same. We need to remember what God's character is like in the midst of the drought. And fourthly, he learns to preach to himself. This is huge, right? He pours out his heart. He analyzes his hopes. He remembers God's love and grace. And then he starts applying it to himself through preaching, right? Look at what he says in this refrain. He says, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. At some point, you have to stop listening to yourself and you have to start talking to yourself, Right? Again, Lloyd-Jones says, you know, you can either spend all day listening to your soul or you can spend all day talking to your soul. It's up to you. At some point, you have to say, enough of this nonsense. Right? You are finite, soul. You don't know everything. Go to the one who is infinite. Right? And so we begin talking to our soul at some point. So we learn the discipline of preaching to ourselves. It takes good listening to preach well, but at some point you have to start applying it and talking to yourself and saying, let's be realistic about what's going on here. See, notice that he, he doesn't go to denial, which would be to say, you know, oh, all my hopes in God, I praise him, right? That's denying the fact that he doesn't feel anywhere near him. Nor does he end up despondent, right? I'll never praise him. I'll never hope in him again. Woe is me, Eeyore, right? No, he's realistic and he's committed to faithfulness. He says, I will praise him. I'm determined to be faithful to him because of his love for me. So the last point this morning, how do you preach to yourself? How do you do that? You see, we have a resource that the psalmist didn't have. Uh, We have something that he only anticipated. See, the, the times when spiritual drought becomes the worst, I think, is when we think God's given up on me. Right? That, that we think we're failures or our sin's too overwhelming or our distance we feel from God is too great and our heart says he's not there but we have to join the psalmist and say just shut up heart. Listen to the good news. Right? And see, the psalm points us to the one who truly thirsted for God who said from the cross I thirst. The one who experienced God forgetting him. Why have you forsaken me? He cried out. See, this psalm points us to the one whose enemies truly taunted him. Where is your God? Save yourself. You see, Jesus Christ, 
truly experience the loss of God in a way that is more profound and infinite than you or I could ever have experienced. You see, Jesus Christ experienced true thirst for him, really experienced being forsaken, really experienced exclusion and exile because he bore our sin. The one who didn't deserve to bear sin at all because he was utterly righteous chose instead to take our place. And he says, I'll bear the thirst, I'll bear the absence so that you can eternally have God's presence. That's the gospel, friends. The one who became exiled so we could be brought home, made children, sons and daughters of God for eternity. That's good news today. And wherever you are, whether you're in a drought or you are not in a drought, or, or you are hearing the good news for the first time, that Jesus Christ loves you, desires a relationship with you, bore all the injustice and the penalty of, of, of sin and death on your behalf so you could be freely accepted because of his life and death and resurrection. That's good news to you. And the result of preaching that news to yourself and believing it and claiming it in your life is that it grows us. That through seasons of doubt, we end up farther down the path, more humble, more filled, more trusting, more durable in our faith because we've kept our eyes on the one who endured death for us. So what we're going to do this morning to celebrate this reality is to go to the tables to receive communion. See, as we go to the table this morning to receive the cup and the bread, what we're doing is we're remembering the one who thirsted so that we could have our hearts utterly satisfied. The wine and the bread are symbols of deep satisfaction, the satisfaction of God's joy to save us and embrace us through His Son, and the satisfaction of what the Son has done for us. So we want to celebrate this morning the one who hungered for God in desolation so we can be filled with God through the body of His Son given on the cross. So I want to invite you this morning to come and receive the bread and the cup this morning. And if if today you're here and, and you're for the first time finding yourself drawn to Christ, trusting Him, make this a moment of surrender in your life to say, I've been dry because I've been living on my own apart from God. I didn't know I had a need, but now I do, and I know that He's met that need through Jesus by going to the cross and rising from the dead. And He wants to come and live in me and fill me with His Spirit so I can know deep satisfaction. I want that today. You can surrender to Him today and tell Him right where you are today and say, I want you. I thirst for you. I surrender to you. I will put my hope in you and what you've done. Lead my life from here on out. And come to the table as an expression of that. To say, I will celebrate the one who's hungered for me and who satisfies me. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love. Thank you for your character. We thank you that you care to hear our hearts poured out and that you equip us to analyze our souls and that you, Lord, have come near to us. We could not come near to you. Our sin was too great, but you came near to us. You've given and cleansed. You've 
made us new creatures, new desires. So God, we want to celebrate you today. We want to go to you preaching to ourselves what you have done.